Um, my voice is not the best today, so I appreciate any extra prayers you want to offer up just that I wouldn't start coughing, right? That's so unhelpful, but, but God's in control of that, so. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. We are, um, if you're using one of the black Bibles that are provided, that can be found on page 1016. Our study through the book of 1 Peter has brought us today to verse 13, and we're actually moving into, last week was kind of the transition, but now we're squarely in the new section in Peter's letter that is focused on Christian suffering. Remember, Peter was writing to believers who were scattered in what is modern-day Turkey, and they were, they were starting to experience persecution for their faith in Christ. And, and he's been reminding them, reminding us that we are exiles in this world, right? That we don't belong to this fallen world anymore. God in his grace has called us out of the domain of darkness and placed us in the eternal kingdom of his dear son. And so we shouldn't be surprised if the world um, at, at best think us odd, at, at worst, you know, you could say hates us and perse- would persecute us. Right? Jesus told his followers to expect that because that's what they did to him. And like Peter has reminded us in, in chapter 2, we follow in Christ's steps now. We follow him down that path of unjust suffering at times. And um, he has not only given us the perfect example of how to not retaliate but return good for evil, but then we know it's because of his finished work that our sins are paid for and that we have the Holy Spirit and that we can respond in a Christ-like way. So all that by way of just kind of framing our minds as we begin this new section uh, that will run through the end of chapter 4, dealing with uh, Christians experiencing persecution or suffering for their faith. So our text today is going to be chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. So I'd ask the congregation, if you're able, to please stand one more time um, for the reading of God's word. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. As, please uh, listen as I read. 1 Peter three thirteen. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. Nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. I want you to imagine with me for a second. Imagine your life without fear of man. 
Imagine what your life would look like if you didn't have any fear of others, of their approval, of what they might do to you. Can you imagine a life like that? How would your life, how would your conduct, how would your words be different if you could really live that way, if you could really live in such a way that you don't fear anything that man could do to you? Would you be bolder in in witnessing to others about Christ? Would you feel freedom to live zealously for Christ? Well, our passage today in God's word says that you can have that kind of life. As a Christian, as someone united to Christ, you can have that kind of life. By God's grace, you can live boldly for Christ without being held back by fear. What, what good news that is. What good news that is for people like me who, who struggle with fear of man. But that's the, the message that Peter gives us in this passage. The title of the sermon today then is No Fear of Man. In verse 14 of our text, Peter says to the Christians of their persecutors, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. What a statement that is, right? People that are persecuting you, people that that are trying to do you harm, that are trying to make your life miserable, that are hurting you. Peter tells the believers, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. We have to say, How can Christians not be afraid of those who are persecuting them? How can Christians not be troubled by the suffering that they're experiencing? Well, our text today, verses 13 through 17 of chapter 3, give us reasons why Christians don't need to be afraid of man. And the text also will show us what happens when we live that way. What happens when we live without fear? So I want to work through this passage under three headings. You see them in your notes. We're going to consider a reason to not be afraid, then the result of not being afraid, and then we're going to finish off with another reason to not be afraid, just because that's how the text is laid out for us today. So let's begin with number one, reason to not be afraid. We see that in verses 13 and 14. God, through the Apostle Peter, says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So in, this, in those verses, we see a reason to not be afraid of man. And I worded it like this, if you want to take notes. The reason is, God is for us. God is for us, and you could also write along with that, we have a secure inheritance, right, to use Peter's language that he's been teaching us. God is for us, and we have a secure inheritance. So no wonder he could say, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? The implied answer in in verse 13 is, no one. 
And now that doesn't mean that people won't persecute Christians. It doesn't mean that people won't cause them temporary harm. But Peter's point is that no amount of harm that people inflict on us will ever take away our inheritance. And he says that in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. There it is. He's talking about our salvation, our future inheritance. God in his grace and mercy has given us, we've, we've been considering this throughout our study of 1 Peter, right? That God in his grace and mercy has given us a promised inheritance. What is that inheritance? It's eternal life with, with the Lord. It's eternal life with the Lord in glory, in the new heavens and the new earth. It's eternal life with the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth in perfect Glorified bodies, no more sin, perfect hearts, perfect bodies, no more sin, no more weakness. Spending eternity enjoying the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ and with all the saints, reigning with him, enjoying the new heavens and the new earth. That is our inheritance, and God has graciously given it to us. Jesus has shared it with us. He's the faithful son. He's the one who inherits all things. But now, because of God's grace and through faith, we're united with him and we become co-heirs with him. And remember, Peter talked about that inheritance in chapter 1. And what now he's saying in chapter 3 is, no one can take that inheritance away from us. Even if you suffer for doing what, what's right, even if you suffer because of Christ, you will be blessed. And again, Peter said that in chapter 1, that this inheritance is being kept in heaven for us, right? And that we are being guarded through faith until we receive it. So we know our inheritance is secure. God has forgiven us. He has adopted us into his family. And no one can separate us from his love. That's what Peter is saying here. And of course, Paul said that explicitly, didn't he, in the book of Romans. So hold your place here, and I would ask you to turn back just a few books to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, if you're using the Black Bibles, page 944. I want to look at verse 29. We'll talk about 28 later in the sermon. 29, Romans 8, 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, that this describes God's plan to save his people. Those different components of our salvation are tied together in an unbreakable chain. We've already, by God's grace, been predestined and called and justified, if you're in Christ, right? And one day, then, we will be glorified, right? That's the last piece that hasn't happened yet there in verse 29. But the others have happened, and so we know that's going to happen. When Christ returns then we will receive our final inheritance. We'll be raised in imperishable bodies and he'll, 
He'll make all things new, eradicate sin once and for all, judge all his enemies, and, and they'll be cast into the lake of fire, and we will be with the Lord forever in a perfect place. So then, still in Romans 8, God continues through the Apostle Paul, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? <laughs> if God is for us, who can be against us? And that's what Peter's saying. It doesn't matter if, if they persecute you. You are blessed because God is for you. You are his. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then notice he goes into suffering. <laughs> Just like Peter's talking about. He goes into persecution. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Right? Christians are being persecuted. They were then. They are now around this world. Again, because this, this fallen world is not their home. But look what Paul says after he lists all those things. Verse 37, no. None of these things will separate us from the love of Christ. None of these things will, will forfeit our final salvation. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. One of the most beautiful passages in the Bible, isn't it? And that's basically what Peter is saying as well in chapter 3. God, by his grace, is for us. He chose to save us. He gave up his son to live and die for us so that we would be saved. Again, God is for us. He has adopted us in Christ or through Christ, into his family. And so when God Almighty is for you, it doesn't matter who else is against you. Right? When God Almighty is for you, as, as the psalmist will say, what can man do to me, really? He is the sovereign Lord, the one who is for you. The one who is for you is the final judge. <laughs> Again, the, the verdict's already been given. We have been justified. We have been declared righteous in God's courtroom because of Christ's perfect life and death for us. So loved ones, God is for us. And no amount of evil or persecution from others can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So again, back to Peter's specific focus our future inheritance is secure God in his grace has promised us that inheritance of eternal life in glory and no one can take that away the persecution of unbelievers does not change the fact that God is for us the persecution of unbelievers does not negate our future inheritance and oh how we need the eyes of faith 
for God to give us through, by his spirit, through his word, the eyes of faith to see beyond our present sufferings to the eternal joy of our inheritance. Our, the video we just watched in Sunday school, the, the teacher said that, right? That we, this life seems like it's so long and unbelievers don't really think about eternity that much, but he said the opposite's actually true, right? This life is short, but eternity is forever, obviously, right? So Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And that's why Peter can say, have no fear of them. Even if you suffer, you're going to be blessed. You are blessed, and one day you'll receive the, the fullness of that blessing, the fullness of your salvation. Again, the Bible tells us we see it around the world. Many of us may even see it in the, in the changing tide of our culture. In our lives, we will likely suffer because we follow Christ. But that suffering is momentary compared to the eternal inheritance that awaits us. So, think about that. Think about that. The suffering you have now is momentary compared to the eternal inheritance. Yes, you may, because of Christ, because of you seeking to live for Christ, yes, you may be mocked by your peers now. But you'll be welcomed by God in eternal glory. Yes, because of Christ, you may be passed over for jobs now. But compare that to reigning forever with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. Yes, some of our brothers and sisters in Christ are being thrown into prison cells. And we may too one day, I don't know, thrown into a prison cell now. But how does that compare to dwelling in our Heavenly Father's house for all eternity? Yes, we could even be starved and tortured now. But how does that compare to eternal paradise with the Lord Jesus and with all the saints? And again, even if unbelievers would kill us, they're merely ushering us into experiencing our inheritance. Because we will immediately be with Jesus in paradise. Now again, our ultimate experience of that inheritance will be when Christ returns and we're raised in glorified bodies. But the worst that people can do to us is kill us. And what did Paul say? For me to live is Christ, and f- but for me to die is gain. Because death just means I'm with the Lord in paradise. Since God is for us and will bless us for all eternity, Peter says there is no reason to fear unbelievers. No reason to fear persecutors. There's no reason to be troubled by any suffering we face in this life. So that's the reason to not be afraid. Secondly, then let's consider from verses 15 and 16 the result of not being afraid. Right? He's saying, you don't need to be afraid. And and if we can get a hold of that by God's grace, what would our life look like? Well, you could write next to this heading, 
living and speaking for Jesus. Living and speaking for Jesus. When we know that God is for us and that no one can keep us from receiving our eternal inheritance, fear gets replaced with boldness and hope and love, loving service. Look at verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. That's talking about living and speaking for Jesus. And we'll look a little more closely at the the different components there, but when he says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. You see what that means? That that means to recognize and to, and to believe and to even cry out from the depths of our heart, Jesus, you are holy. You are unique. There is no one like you. You are my king, Jesus. Jesus, you are the one true Lord of all. And not only are we saying that to, to him in worship, but it's saying, we're saying that to others, to even those who would persecute us or have been persecuting us and then ask us, about our hope. Jesus is my king. It doesn't matter what you do to me. He has saved me. He's given me an eternal inheritance. Jesus alone is worthy of my praise. And and by, by saying that, by testifying about that, we're actually calling them to believe. We're saying he's he's Lord over you too, and he's worthy of your praise. He's worthy of your devotion. You need to follow him as Lord. He will save you. He will forgive you. He will welcome you into his family. That's what Peter is talking about. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being ready to give a reason for the hope that's in you. This is what it looks like, loved ones, to fear Christ and not man. Right? If any of you have studied the, you know, the fear of man... We, we realize what the Bible teaches is that the way you replace fear of man is by fearing God. And as we talked about in our last Sunday school class, that means being so in awe of the Lord, of who he is. And, and as a Christian, then delighting in who he is, drawing near to him because of his grace and mercy that he has saved us. And being so enamored by the gospel and enamored by God's grace and all the promises that come to us in Christ. Just being in awe of that. That's, that's fearing, fearing the Lord. That's living in the fear of the Lord. And if we can do that, then that, again, that makes man seem very small. Right? When our God is big, or when we recognize that he's big, we know he's big, right? When we recognize that he's big, then man becomes very small. But too often we get those switched around, don't we? Man seems awful big, and God seems awful small. So when we fear Christ this way, we will not fear man, and we will be bold to make a defense to anyone who asks us for the reason for our hope. Isn't that interesting? Peter is telling us what might happen as we seek to follow Christ in in this world and as we suffer. 
Peter is saying that in the midst of our suffering, our persecutors, or maybe, you know, whether it's them directly, whether it's others observing this, whatever, our persecutors may ask us to give a reason for the hope that we have. In other words, they may ask us why we believe what we believe. And again, it may start off in a, in a very kind of condescending way, but yet if God's working in their heart, it may actually be, there may be some sincerity to it, right? But it's like, why are you willing to suffer for this Jesus? Why go through all this pain just for the name of Christ? And what, what could be our answer to that question? Because he's worth it. Because he's saved me from hell. Because he's loved me and laid down his life for me. Because he's purchased eternal life for me. Because he's promised that I will be with him forever in paradise. Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Because he's coming again. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We're all going to stand before him. What an opportunity we have as we suffer to give testimony to Christ. Again, whether it's through persecution, I know many of you are, are suffering just ongoing health battles, right? And it's the same kind of principle, the same opportunity. How can you have such peace, right? Not that we do it perfectly. We have our good days and bad days. But how do you have such peace? How do you have such hope? How do you, you know, still love and worship the Lord, right? And, and there's the open door for the gospel. There's the platform to display the glory of Christ, you know what he has done for me? Do you know how he has saved me when I could not save myself? Do you know how he's lived the life that I could never have lived? And he credits that to me. Do you know how he's adopted me into his family? Do you know how he promises to never leave me or forsake me? Do you know how he has indwelt me by his spirit? He's with me every day through my trials. And someday he's going to bring me home. With him. The truth of the gospel in our lives, loved ones, takes away our fear. It's interesting, as I was thinking about Peter and inheritance, I was thinking about the down payment of our inheritance, right? We already have. We have the Holy Spirit who's raised us spiritually in Christ. In the very down payment of our inheritance, the Holy Spirit dwelling inside us, he is the one who empowers us to boldly speak and live for Christ. That's what we saw in, in uh, the Apostle Peter's life, right? I mean, isn't it interesting? As he writes this, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, give a reason for the hope that you have can't help but think he, he was remembering the change that had happened in his life, right? The failure, how he had denied the Lord in front of a servant girl, in front of others warming by the fire when Jesus is on trial, right? He hadn't been bold then. He hadn't spoken up for the Lord then. But after the resurrection and after the Holy Spirit uh, indwells him, <laughs> He speaks up for, for Christ in a much harder situation, doesn't he? In Acts 4, 
when the very rulers and authorities are saying, don't preach the gospel. Quit preaching Christ to these people and threatening them. And yet, what does he say in Acts 4? I have it here later in my notes, but listen how bold he is. Then Peter, Acts 4, 8, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter was exhibit A for what he's telling us here in chapter 3. He was able to give a reason for the hope that's in him. Even to those who were in authority over him and were threatening him. Wow, that's encouraging, isn't it, to us? By God's grace, we can do the same. We can speak up for Jesus. We can live for him without fear. Then verse 15, Peter tells us what this living and speaking should look like. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So you see, boldly living for Jesus does not give us license to be rude, to be arrogant, to be obnoxious. No. He gives us instructions of what that should look like for our speech and for our living. First, our speech, he says, we're to do it with gentleness and respect. Remember, gentleness means without harshness, right? We saw that back in chapter 3 when, with the instructions to the wives. So he's saying when we respond to our oppressors with the reason for our hope, let us do it with gentleness, without being harsh. And then he says we're to respond with respect. We respect others because we ultimately respect and fear God. And again, maybe there's someone in authority over us, and we know God's the one who's put them in authority over us. Either way, whoever they are, they're someone made in the image of God, and we respect them, right? We treat them with respect, with decency. So we can be bold, we're called to be bold, but to be Christ-like in our boldness. Not arrogant, not rude, but gentle and with respect. We're not to return evil for evil, as we've already seen in, in this letter. Yes, they may be slandering us, but we're not to try to get back at them and say, Oh, really? Well, I'm the one that knows the truth and you're just... You're a blind fool, right? No. No, we're to return good for evil. Peter instructs us not only about our speech, but also how we are to live in the face of suffering. Verse 16 begins, having a good conscience. Right? This is, we're living without fear. We're boldly living and speaking for Jesus And as we testify that Christ is our hope, we must do so with a clear conscience before the Lord. In other words, our walk needs to match our talk. (laughs) Having a clear conscience doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. We know we're not going to be perfect. But 
it, it, when, if we sin, if we sin in front of others, we ask their forgiveness. Say, I'm sorry, that was, that was wrong the way I spoke to you, the way I, you know, I got defensive. Please forgive me. Our lives are not to contradict our message. And that's what Peter's saying. Because we've all probably seen that, right? Maybe we've been there ourselves. Christians who fail to walk the talk or to talk the walk <laughs> rightly, right? They're not, doing, they're not doing both sides here. Maybe, maybe we've seen Christians that show boldness to testify to Christ before unbelievers. But their speech and actions are so unloving that it, it's like it does more harm than good. Or they're, they're so prideful and arrogant in the way they do it. Then it's like, wow, you've just, you've caused the gospel to, to stink. It should be a fragrant aroma by God's grace. Giving Christians a bad name and actually hurting the cause of Christ. So Peter warns us here, don't be like that. Live and speak boldly for Christ, yes, but do so in a Christ-like way. And again, we have the ultimate example of Christ himself, don't we? Who, when being persecuted, he testified boldly. He was bold before the Sanhedrin. He was bold before Pilate. Yet he was always godly. <laughs> he was without sin. He didn't return evil for evil. He was even compassionate. I think about, if you read the gospel accounts, right, you know, and um, it, they talk about the crucifixion, obviously, and Jesus being crucified between two thieves. And, and I think it's Mark's account. I, I didn't look it up, but that says both criminals, right? The one on either side of him were reviling him, right? But then we see in some of the other accounts that one of the criminals eventually comes around. And he tells the other guy, hey, knock it off. We're here because we deserve this. But this man has done nothing wrong. Jesus, remember me when you enter into uh, your kingdom. Did not God use the, the gentleness of Jesus, the, the love, the sacrifice, the way he's saying, Father, please forgive them for they do not know what they do. The way he's not returning evil for evil. Did he not use that to even change this man's heart and save him? So by God's grace, as we boldly live and speak for, for Christ, as we respond to our persecutors with Christ-like speech and actions, notice what will take place in verse 16. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Okay, put to shame. That refers primarily, understand this biblically, to be put to shame refers primarily to standing, not so much your emotions. To be put to shame is not so much about being embarrassed, although there might be some of that. It's, it's actually about being defeated. Being put to shame speaks of the disgrace that comes with being defeated. And so what Peter's saying is, by God's grace, as we respond to our persecutors with clear and bold testimonies to Christ, all the while seeking to live out our lives with integrity, our good behavior can cause our attackers to realize that they are on the wrong side of truth. How often does that get used in our culture today, right? Oh, you're on the wrong side of history. You're on the wrong side. No, I mean, that's their worldview. But God can use our lives and testimony to show people, wow, I think Jesus really is Lord. 
I think what he believes is right. Like I said, I think God did that in the life of that criminal next to, to Jesus. I wonder what impact Stephen had on Paul's life. Right? Stephen's another example of this, being persecuted, being killed. And yet he says, Father, forgive them. He gave a bold testimony. He called them out for not believing the prophets, for rejecting the Messiah. But yet he did so with integrity. Saul was there holding his garments. And we know Saul wasn't, con- or not his garments, the garments of the ones stoning Stephen. And we know that later when the risen Lord Jesus appeared to Saul on the Damascus Road, he, that's when he was transformed. But maybe those seeds were planted with Stephen. One more thing about this, and then we'll cover the last point quickly, I, I promise. But um, as we read this passage, it's encouraging, but it's also convicting. For probably on many levels, but the level I'm thinking of right now is it's convicting because are people asking us for the reason for our hope? Again, not that we go looking for persecution, but I mean, we still should be living with hope. And, and our lives should be mark, markedly different, right? Because we're following Christ. And so are people asking us? And so again, I point us back to let's fear God and not man. Let's be so in awe of God. Let's so delight in Christ. Delight in the love and grace that Christ has shown us. We're going to be different. And that God might use that to give opportunities for people to ask and even opportunities for us to speak up. Okay, lastly, reason to not be afraid. Right? We've already seen one reason at the beginning of the passage. Then we saw the result of, what it, of living without fear. Then verse 17 gives us yet another reason to not be afraid. If you're taking notes, you could write this. God is in control of our suffering. God is in control of our suffering. Look at verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So on one hand, verse 17 just states the truth that Peter's already been driving home. It's better to suffer now for a little while at the hands of evil men as you follow Christ than to suffer for eternity as will happen to all who die without Christ. And that's an important truth. That's what we've been focusing on. But verse 17 also reminds us of another encouraging truth, that God is in control of our suffering. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. If we suffer, it is all, we know this for sure, you can take it to the bank. If we suffer, it is according to God's will. <laughs> Meaning, it's, according to, it's within God's sovereign control. God is sovereign over every detail of our lives. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Ephesians 1.11, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So this is so encouraging, isn't it? That nothing will happen to us apart from God's sovereign will. God who controls all things is our loving Father. And he promises in Romans 8.28 that as Christians, God works all things together for our good and his glory. As he uses our suffering to sanctify us more into the precious image of Christ. Which is what the next verse, verse 29 of Romans 8, is talking about. 
God is in control of, of that person that's insulting you. A loving God, a wise father has brought that into your life to, to glorify his name through you and to sanctify you, make you more like Christ in that moment. Remember, Peter's already told us about this truth back in chapter 1. Now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So again, we don't need to be afraid of man. We don't need to be troubled by suffering or the prospect of suffering because we know God is for us and he is working out his perfect plan. Oh, Christian, be encouraged. God loves you with a perfect, never-ending love. He has committed himself to you. He is at work changing you more and more into the image of his son. And so in his perfect love and wisdom, God knows just the right amount and the right kind, the right timing of suffering to bring into our lives <laughs> to sanctify us more and more into the image of his son, to purify our faith, to draw us closer to him, for the glory of his name and for our eternal joy. What an encouragement it is. Not only that we can look forward to a day when there is no more suffering, but an encouragement to know that God is sovereign and loving and wise even now in our suffering. And right before I wrap up, I just, I just want to give a, a gospel call. I was reminded <laughs> throughout the week as I studied this passage and prepared the message, Jesus' words says, Don't fear a man who can only kill the body, but fear God who can throw both body and soul into hell. And again, by nature, we get that all backwards. We're too worried about what others think of us and we're not thinking about God. But I just want to remind you, all of you here today under the sound of my voice that we will all stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and that he is the final judge and that he alone determines where we spend eternity. And we don't have to guess and wonder, well, what, what kind of test is that going to be? And, you know, will I have done enough? It's, it's a pass-fail thing. If you have by faith turned from your sins, embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you are united with Christ and you will be welcomed into eternal joy, your eternal inheritance. But if you did, if you did not accept Christ as Savior and Lord, better said, if you did not embrace him by faith as Savior and Lord, then he will say, depart from me, I'm, I never knew you. And so don't let that, don't let you fall into that last category. Jesus is, is very clear. All who come to me will be saved. I will not turn anyone away. And so I'll, I want you to have a living hope. I want you to know that your sins are forgiven. I want you to know that you're reconciled to your creator. I want you to know that God Almighty is your, is your loving Heavenly Father. And so... By faith, embrace him today.
And loved ones, again, just to summarize what we've seen here. We can live and speak for Jesus in this fallen world because we know that Almighty God is for us. He has graciously saved us and given us an eternal inheritance. And our loving Father is in control of all things. And and he's in control of any pain that he brings into our lives now to sanctify us for our good and his glory. Our future is secure. No power of hell, no persecution of man can ever pluck us from his hand. We do not need to fear man or death because we know that death simply ushers us into the glorious presence of Jesus and leads to our, to the, our enjoyment of our full eternal inheritance. So loved ones, let's boldly live and speak for Jesus. And let's pray for opportunities to, to speak for Jesus. Right? Yes, we're praying that people will ask us Let's pray that they do, and let's pray for the Spirit to open a door for the gospel. Even Paul himself, the Apostle Paul, prayed this way in Ephesians 6, 19. Verse 18, he just said, make prayer for all the saints. And then verse 19, he says, and also for me. Pray for me, he says, that that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So let that be our dependence as well. Let us abide in Christ, delighting in who he is and what he's doing. Let us pray for open doors and and the ability to boldly live and speak for Jesus. Father, we praise you once again. We, we do fear you. We stand in awe of you, in awe of your grace, in awe of your sovereign power, in awe of your faithfulness, in awe of your love, that you would send your only son to, to live and die for sinners like us. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you have conquered sin and death, that you rose again, that you reign now from the Father's right hand, that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to you. That every knee will bow and every tongue will confess one day that Jesus Christ is Lord. And God, we pray that you would open hearts now that people would gladly confess. Not at the end when they're being basically forced to do it before they're punished forever. But that they would gladly confess. They would gladly bow the knee to Jesus now. And Lord, help us to be the salt and light that you've made us to be. Help us to be the ambassadors for you that we are. Oh, how we need this in our life, Lord. Please deliver us from fear of man. Please rather replace that with a fear of you and also a love for our fellow man. Please give us opportunities to to point them to Christ with our lives and with our words. May you do a mighty work in Abounding Grace Church. May we see, may you, we know the, the, saving people is up to you. We pray you would use us and that we would see fruit, Lord. That we would see people come to know Christ. Encourage those who are going through a time of suffering now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand please and we'll sing one final song of, of praise. And this, this one is um, not in the hymnal, it's on the song sheet that's in your bulletin. So make sure you grab that. <clears throat>